may have a seat. Amen. It is fun preaching after listening to y'all worship, I tell you what, golly. Uh, Hey, find Acts chapter 1 in your Bible. We are looking at, uh, for a season of time, the origin story of this movement we call Christianity. We talked about last week how the book of Acts is almost like a childhood photo. We're going to see like this moment in time where Christians and Christ followers start stepping out into the world. Their first steps, their first words, just a lot of firsts in this book and uh, a lot we can learn from. Today what we're going to learn is that there was an impulse in the early church that really guided everything that they did and bore a lot of fruit in their life. And it's an impulse that you and I can embrace, only here's the thing. Uh, the times that we live in kind of are going in an opposite direction than this impulse and make it difficult for us to step into it. And so I want to talk about why that is, and we're going to have to talk a little bit about trust. Let me ask you this question. Why is trust of others at an all-time low? Don't answer out loud. You might say, well, I, listen, I have no problem trusting other people, but surely you have observed that suspicion in our society, culturally, as a, is at an all-time high. Suspicion of authority figures and science and educators and all sorts of people. I, I've mentioned this before. My brother is a doctor up in the emergency department up in Denver. Um, he said this to me the other day. He said, remember at the beginning of COVID when everyone was like cheering for frontline medical workers? I'm like, yeah. He's like, those days are over. <laughs> he said, everybody walks into the emergency room is angry at me, like already, like I haven't even talked to them, but they're angry at me as if I, like my whole goal in life is just to order a bunch of tests that they don't need and build their insurance. He's like, that just people come in like deeply suspicious. That's new-ish, uh, maybe not totally new, but it's a little new. And it's not just medicine. I think it's all over society. There's just a, a difficulty in trusting each other and in basic interactions. It's like we're pulling back a little bit culturally. Here's the thing though. Well, some of that's understandable and we all probably have experiences that feed into that. It is a real problem for us Christ followers, this distrust. I don't know if you felt this, but it is absolutely true. It is really hard to be deeply suspicious and distrusting and also live out kingdom values. Those things don't fit real nicely together. How do we get here? We should understand that. You know, we probably have some personal reasons why we might struggle to trust people, but there's also some societal pressures that have been trending, honestly, for hundreds of years that have brought us to this moment. Uh, There's a lot of different ways that you could probably trace the origin of this thing, but I want to go back to, uh, let me ask you about a phrase. Have you heard of the phrase, the dark ages? The Dark Ages, like you've heard of that time, it roughly refers to the period of time from about 500 AD to about 1300 AD. Uh, in 1300 AD, this guy comes along named Petrarch, and he invents the phrase, the Dark Ages. The only problem is, the Dark Ages really weren't all that dark. He invented the phrase because Petrarch believed as a Renaissance Italian philosopher that he and his people were like this new dawn shining on humanity. 
And so he invents this phrase, the dark ages, basically to take everything that has come before him and said, oh, those stupid, superstitious, ignorant people don't know anything. It's us who know the things. And he invents this phrase, the dark ages. And as it turns out, it catches on. And other Renaissance thinkers are like, yeah, they were stupid. Look at us. Look at what we know. And a few, about 100 years after that, uh, the, the printing press comes into existence. And you start circulating these ideas all over. And they start catching on really uh, powerfully. The, the only problem is there were remarkable advancements during the dark ages in science, in astronomy, in architecture, in the arts, like in every area. Uh, Petrarch was literally standing on the shoulders of thinkers in the Dark Ages as he criticized them. Now, it didn't, start, or it didn't stop with him. This way of thinking of let's just throw everyone under the bus who's not like me and doesn't think like me, uh, you know, that also was a big part of the Reformation, which came uh, about 100 years after that. And there was this fight amongst people in the church. And they're like not just saying, well, hey, I have a different way of seeing that. But it was very much you're the worst and you're going to hell. And then the Enlightenment comes along. People like Voltaire make this an art form, criticizing everyone and everything. And Voltaire just attacks the church most of all. And basically the criticism is this, that the church leaders don't care about anything except power. And they're using the Bible and their spiritual authority and your superstitions to manipulate and control you and fill their pockets and maintain power in the continent of Europe. Um, and that was kind of his approach. And of course, the church did not respond super well to that. They fire back at all the Enlightenment thinkers. And there begins to be this war that takes us into the modern era between the church and the sciences. And Voltaire's assertion was, you shouldn't trust the church. These people are awful. You should trust us, science, humanism. We're going to be this light that leads us to a glorious future, right? That was the modern era. Science, technology were king. They move forward at light speed. And look at all the stuff that we've been able to accomplish. It's honestly pretty impressive, except we're in the era of post-modernity. That's what comes after modernity. And postmodern thinkers came along, and they just pointed out this slightly inconvenient fact that, as it turns out, everyone is corrupt, and everyone is trying to steal from you and lie to you and uh, abuse your trust and manipulate and coerce you. And so that's where we are. We're like, well, gosh, we can't trust science. We can't trust the church. We can't, there's no one that we can trust. That's like a very short summary of 700 years of Western philosophy and thought. And I probably left a few important things out, but the point is this. Everyone's involved in a conspiracy. Everyone is trying to manipulate you. Here we are today, where you actually have people who are so suspicious of information and authority that they believe space is fake and the earth is flat, right? They're called flat earthers. And what's remarkable about flat earthers as a movement, this is a real thing, look it up. What's remarkable about flat earthers as a movement is they didn't even believe the earth was flat back in Columbus Day. I was taught they did, that Columbus people were like, you're going to sail off the edge of the earth. Do you know why we were taught that? Because in uh, about 300 years after Columbus, a man named Washington Irving wrote a history where he accused the people in Columbus Day of thinking that the earth was flat. The only problem is there's no evidence to suggest that they did. I'm 
honestly, the argument was about the circumference of the earth and how long he was going to be sailing around the globe. Nobody thought the earth was flat until Washington Irving said they did. If that name sounds familiar, he also wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, which rooted in historical fact as well. But So he, he fabricates this idea... And people are so distrusting, they're like, I bet he's right. Doesn't matter that he doesn't have any evidence. I bet he's right. Those stupid idiots in Columbus's day, we can't trust them. Look at how ignorant they were. They thought they would sail off the edge of the earth, even though they never did. I, I digress a little bit, but my point is this. If for 700 years you tell the general population that everyone who's come before me is lying and stupid... Everyone in power is trying to manipulate you. And then, as it turns out, some of those modern institutions that we have put faith in have failed and proven to be less than benevolent. You pair that with the existential dread that all humans live with and the experience of betrayal that we all have relationally, throw in a little bit of a worldwide pandemic, and it's real easy to be cynical, you know? It's real easy to distrust everyone and everything. The problem for us is it's very hard to be a gospel-centered, loving person who's deeply suspicious and untrusting of others. I, I don't know if you can. It is true. This is true. People can be awful, right? People can be untrustworthy, of course. Yet, suspicion and distrust of awful people leads us away from kingdom values. And that is the tension that we have to navigate in this world, is we have reason to not trust, but also there's something about that, living in that place that leads us away from the kingdom. And you may not care about all those philosophical trends that I just rattled off just now in the Western world, but I just want you to glimpse a little bit of today because we are about to go back to a time before all of that. We're about to go back to a time before this intellectually competitive mass media communication war about who's right and who can be trusted. It's going to be refreshing, but deeply challenging. We're going to observe a way of life related to trust and interaction with others that these early believers learned directly from Jesus. Jesus, who, by the way, probably understood more than anyone else how awful and untrustworthy humans can be, and yet loved them, pressed into relationship, stuck with them in a way that is admirable. And we're going to learn from this, hopefully, uh, and be, if we can be thoughtful about where we are and how our world has tried to cram us into this cynical, suspicious mold, uh, we might just discover our God wants to free us from it. So, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Let's see if God leads us someplace different. So we left off last week. Uh, disciples, they're on a mountain. Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. They're like, we don't totally understand that, but they do it. And here's what happens. Verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went to an upstairs room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So I want you to notice something Luke is describing here. Jesus, he's ascended into heaven. 
He says, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. They don't really understand what they're waiting for, but they say, listen, whatever this thing is, whatever comes next, let's just stick together. Let's just go to God together in prayer. And he lists the disciples. I'm sure you've heard this before. It is a pretty diverse group from just a, a like philosophical approach. Uh, like these guys don't have a lot in common. And they also uh, have reason to be suspicious. These last two months have been very difficult. And if you don't think that the trauma of the last two months has left some of these people a little bit sideways with one another, I, like, I promise you it has. And yet there's trust and there's connection and they haven't given in to suspicion and fear the way you think maybe they would. But something else we have to see in this passage, it's kind of a side note, but I want to mention it anyway. Uh, Luke writes, or in English it says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Only here's the thing. In Greek, there's no article in that sentence. So in Greek, it doesn't actually say the women, it just says women. And so the passage reads, they all join together constantly in prayer along with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Well, because Luke is pointing out and emphasizing the qualitative definition of the word woman instead of giving, using it as an identifier. So he's not saying like, hey, you know, the women, like those women, he, they were praying with those women. Um, no, he's just saying they're praying with women and Mary and the brothers of Jesus. Um, why does that matter? Well, because it's notable these 11 men chose to do that. That's why he includes it. In the Jewish religious system, there was male spaces and there were female spaces. And there wasn't a lot of blending of those two spaces. Um, one of the things that Luke constantly points out, you'll see this in his gospel and also in the book of Acts, um, is that Jesus was constantly blending those two spaces in ways that no one else did. That's not, it doesn't need to be pointed out if everyone else did it, but it wasn't done, and a rabbi typically would not blend those spaces, so that's what makes it notable. He's constantly, Jesus is, pushing the envelope a little bit in this area of Jewish religious custom. He's acknowledging and including women in places that historically they were excluded from. And what Luke's pointing out here in this passage is that same pattern that Jesus had was being continued here in the early church. And women were included even in this prayer gathering, which would be typically culturally male. I bring this up for two reasons. One, it's, it's easy to miss stuff like that if you don't do a little bit of study in the scripture. Um, there's a, actually an opportunity coming up for further study. If you're interested in this issue in particular, uh, the passage is about women and men in leadership in the church. There's going to be a class starting on September 18th that's going to look at all of those passages where more is going on than might immediately meet the eye in the English translation. Uh, so you get to ask all your questions, and there's three uh, just great people from our church who, uh, you know, have studied this stuff for years, been to seminary, and they're going to dive into all that sort of stuff. So mark on your calendar September 18th. But the real reason I'm pointing this out is just this. If we step back from this passage a little bit, what we are observing is despite the diversity of this group, despite the fact that culturally these are not people who blended very often, there is a really remarkable commitment to each other. I mean, there is like a really impressive kindness and just willingness to stick together. Men, women, disciples, Jesus' mom, as brothers, it's like, let's just stick Let's just be together. And that impulse served them well 
uh, in all of the book of Acts. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering 120. I know I point this out all the time, 120 mostly uneducated, largely not influential followers of Jesus produced a 2,000-year-long movement that is still going strong today. Apart from the presence and the existence of God, there is no logical explanation for this to have happened. So Peter stands up, verse 16, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, parenthetically, Luke includes, with the payment he received for, for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Thank you, Luke, for that disgusting image, right? Did I mention Luke was a physician? Um, point is, Judas died. That's probably enough. Uh, Peter continues. Verse 20. For, said Peter, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From one of these must be, uh, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So most scholars suspect that what Peter is connecting here is there's 12 disciples and there are 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus even said something at some point about the 12 disciples having a leadership role in the kingdom of heaven over the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And there's a little bit of a debate of what did he actually mean. But it seems here pretty clear that Peter's like, well, we have a vacancy. We got to fill it. He took that literally. We need 12 people to oversee these 12 tribes. He gives two qualifiers for who they would select. First, he says we have to choose a man. Now, some people take verses like that, and they say that because of that sort of a verse, what that means is God has permanently prohibited women from serving in leadership roles in the church. Other people take verses like that, and they say, well, it seems more clear that Peter's decision here is just uh, reading the times and trying to make a wise decision considering the culture they lived in. You should study stuff like that on your own and make up your own decision or make up your own mind about it. Great way to do that. We have a class <laughs> starting September 18th. Um, sorry. Uh, what I really want us to notice is this. What is the character standard uh, for selecting this 12th apostle? Um, the question is simply this. Have you been with Jesus the whole time? That's all they're asking. The job was to be a witness of Jesus. Be someone who reveals Jesus to the watching world. That's the job. They're not looking for someone who's rich or smart or educated or powerful. They just wanted someone who knew Jesus. That was the only qualifier for leadership, and I would say on some level still is. Verse 23. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed, Lord... 
You know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast the lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Does that strike you as an odd way to make a decision? It's unusual, right? It's a little bit weird. Uh, There's a few instances in the Bible of this sort of thing. It connects to this like obscure Jewish custom. I don't have time to explain all of it, but basically they're just rolling the dice and doing what the dice tell them. There's a lot maybe that could be said about that. I I just want to observe this. The way they make decisions changes substantially after the Holy Spirit descends. So after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they approach decision-making very differently. Here, though, they had dice, so they roll them. Matthias gets the nod. That's literally the last we will hear about Matthias. I don't, maybe he went on to do great stuff. We don't know. It's not in the Scripture. So what do we make out of this weird story? It's just like sandwiched in there right before the Holy Spirit shows up. What do we make out of it? You know, there's a lot of ways we could go. I I think I I just want to introduce this theme that we've been talking about because it's persistent throughout the entire book. It certainly is evident here. The impulse of the first followers of Jesus was, let's stick together and let's seek God together. Let's listen to God together. That's what they're doing here. They're just sticking together. They're praying together. Men, women, everyone, people from this diverse background, they're saying, hey, let's just, let's be together. We don't know where this is going, but in the meantime, let's just be with each other. That's the book of Acts. It's just like this constant impulse of let's be together and let's seek God together. Big decisions, let's be together, seek God together. Persecution, let's just be together. Disagreement, confusion, that's what they did. That was their approach to nearly everything in the book. It's like a reflex of the church. Stick together, seek God together. In fact, this is what they're going to be doing next week when we read the Holy Spirit descends. In the final moments before the Holy Spirit descends, they're just together and praying. That's all they're doing. So here's the problem I see for us. If a central impulse and something God used in remarkable ways in the early church is stick together and seek God together, and yet our culture The cultural value that is trending is more like trust no one. Everyone is trying to deceive you. Uh, Figure it out on your own. Protect your freedom at all costs. Then, gosh, we have a lot to overcome if we're going to walk in this. This mold of suspiciousness that our world is like squeezing us into is going to be something we're going to constantly have to be fighting against because I don't see this impulse ever going away. Like this is a central way that God works through his people is this stick together and seeking God together. And yet this mold of suspiciousness that we're crammed into by our world, it makes us rarely stick. We leave each other all the time over all sorts of silly things because I, how dare you, you know, and we just, we storm out. It's kind of the cultural move. So I want to maybe just close with a few words of just advice or maybe application on how do we walk in this in a way that is countercultural, counter to the cynicism and the suspicion that we are taught from the day we get a smartphone. First, and obviously, 
I think this is, uh, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We, all of us, in our life, we need to find the right people to stick to in our life, right? That's part of what we see here. They're not just sticking to anyone. They're, they found the right people, and they're saying, because you're the right people, we're going to stick, and we're going to really stick. And what I mean is you cultivate an inner circle of people that we can turn to when we are confused and struggling and seek God with them together. That's what we're seeing in this passage. But I think we have to do that in ways that are a little counter to the culture that we live in. Most of us, because of the culture we live in, what we're looking for is just people that we have affinity with. Like we all want to be understood. We want to have, you know, friends that we have lots in common with. But think about that, lots in common with. What that really just means is we all like the same things and we all hate the same things. I don't know that it's all that virtuous to find someone that you have a lot in common with. There's almost 8 billion people on the earth. They're, you're bound to have some stuff in common with some of them. That's not what we're seeing here. They just, the, the early followers just stuck together because they all had the same hobbies and they liked the same music and they had the same political opinions. That's not why they stuck, Right? At the center of the way that they stuck was they had one thing in common, and it was Jesus. This was a group that said, listen, I, whatever else is true about you, and there was some diversity there, but whatever else is true about you, I know that your desire is to put the kingdom first in your life at all cost. And so that means we're in it together. And that means we're going to stick with each other and we're going to help each other through stuff. And, and there was a kind of connection in that that I would suggest you will not find with just people you find, uh, share interest with. It was deeper. It was more substantial and more intentional. And so when I say find the right people to stick to, what I mean is this. Each of us needs to develop an inner circle of people who care more about Jesus and the kingdom of God than anything else. Each of us needs that to function. And if you find someone who cares more about Jesus and the kingdom of God than anyone else, like, do not let them go. And please, do not abandon them because you disagree on some lesser issue. That's the way of our world, right? Oh, you think that? Well, we, you know, the way of the kingdom is stick no matter what. If you have the kingdom in Jesus, we're going to stick. Now, how do we find people like that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think what they're looking for in a 12th apostle is relevant. What are they looking for in Matthias? They're looking for someone who knew Jesus, who could help others see Jesus more clearly. So maybe a question we could ask ourselves is the same sort of question they were asking themselves when they're picking this next apostle. Who do you know who helps you see Jesus more clearly? Who do you know who knows Jesus well enough to represent him to you. That's what you need in an inner circle. Do you know someone, certainly not someone who's perfect, that's not an option, right? But someone maybe like who understands grace, like this central feature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know someone who understands the love of God and his grace? Do you know someone who has a good picture of Christ-likeness. I'm not just talking about like moralism, don't do any bad things, but like an actual healthy picture of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus and embrace his mission as your own. You know, first of all, if we want to find people like that, we need to be people like that. But also, if we find people like that, don't let them out of your sight, you know? I don't mean like in a stalker sort of way, right? You know, 
respectful of consent and mutuality, but don't let them out of your sight. Stick to them. If you look at your life and you're like, man, I, I don't have a lot of people like that. I don't know if I could have it. It wouldn't be an inner circle. It might just be one other person, you know. Uh, where do I find people like that? Hey, you're in luck. Here's what I want you to do. Look around this room. Just, there's people. It's not just you and me. Look around. Look around. Make some eye contact. Come on. Some of you weren't doing it. Look around this room. Do it. There's other people here. It's all right. They know. They know you're here. Don't hold that eye contact too long. That's weird. <laughs> if you're like, where do I find people like that? You are in luck because there's a lot of people like that sitting in this room. There are. I know you people. There's a lot of people like that sitting in your room. That's why I'm still here. I'm sticking because I'm like, oh my gosh, some of these people, I need to be around them. I need to seek God with these people. You know, we're launching a bunch of groups right now. I, I just want to say a word about this. We don't do stuff like small groups or Sunday school classes just so you have something to do in your calendar because you seem lonely. That's not why we do it. We do that stuff so you have space to pursue intentionality with kingdom-focused Jesus followers. It's the only reason we do it. And I would even go so far as to say this. You might have never heard this in church, but I will say it now. Church and church groups do not exist to make friends. That's not why they exist. If you just want to find some friends that you have stuff in common with, I can tell you 10 places better than church to find that. Right? But if you want to find some people who are figuring out how to make this kingdom of Jesus first in their life, I cannot think of one place better than a healthy church to find that. That's what all the stuff we do is about. That's what church uh, is about. Finding Jesus-centered people and sticking to them so that you can seek God together. That's why our groups exist, so we can find people who are seeking Jesus. And then, so that we can do this, so we can seek God together. What's interesting about seeking God together is, you know, like we go way back, Acts is 2,000 years old, right? Um, The methods are still the same. How do you seek God with a group? Well, you seek him through scripture, explore scripture together. You ask God to speak directly to your minds through the Holy Spirit. Uh, You seek him through conversation with other people who are also seeking him. It's just that simple. It's just that. We're still doing the same things we did at the very beginning. Functionally, that's what groups are about. There's something about seeking God with others in a way that is a little bit more permanent that unlocks the work of God in the movement of the kingdom in our lives. I will promise you this. If you have someone in your life that you look at and you're like, man, I admire them spiritually. Like, gosh, there's something about them that just, they remind me of Jesus. If you dug a little bit, looked under the hood of their lives, I promise you they did not get that way by flying solo. And I promise you they made hard choices to stay with people even when it was complicated. And that's what produced the fruit in their lives of Christ-likeness. And that's what we see here in the early church. You know, I know, I know firsthand how easy it is to be cynical about people. It's the easiest thing in the world. There are so many voices stoking that cynicism in our culture, like everywhere, just stoking that cynicism. I mean, it's been, 
a long 700 years of that. Collectively, I think our capacity of trust has taken a lot of hits. And I know that you know this, but it is true that you could spend a lifetime pointing out all the reasons why people are untrustworthy and awful. And some people do, right? And when you do find someone and say, I want to stick with that person, I promise you they will give you a reason to walk away, right? And I promise you, you will give them a reason to walk away. But if we aren't careful, our entire life will be about not ever being betrayed instead of about the kingdom. I'm going to say that again because I know some of us are on this road right now. If we are not careful, the entirety of our life will become about never being betrayed instead of about seeking first his kingdom. Those are two different things. And you can get through life never being betrayed and never really experience the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, there is risk and there is pain and there are mistakes that you will have to overcome by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Acts gives us an answer. The answer is not trust everyone. That's not the answer. That's never the answer biblically. The answer is trust God, honestly. Trust God enough to stick to some of his people. That is the answer, right? And it will be frustrating at times, absolutely. It will be confusing at times, absolutely. You will get your feelings hurt at times, absolutely. You will have to wrestle with feelings of betrayal if you're really going to stick the way we see in Scripture, absolutely. Stick anyway. Stick anyway. Trust God enough to seek him with others as a way of life. This is the beauty of the book of Acts. That's the reflex of these first followers. That is our origin story. Stick together, seek God together, and 2,000 years later, that's still what we're trying to walk out. Pray with me. Jesus, we confess this to you. There is probably nothing in any of our lives that has caused more pain than human relationships. Some of us are limping and struggling because of what we've experienced from others, and yet we see that you're leading us back into relationships. So God, can you strengthen our hearts, and can you soften our calluses towards others? Can you give us the wisdom to engage again and to engage permanently with some? Can you help us stick And can you help us find you with others? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship together.